Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. We'll also be mining some of the precious truths of the book of Colossians, the effort of interpreting the text as well. This week the world has had its eyes fixed on what would seem to the natural eyes to be a speck of dust moving across the face of the sun. Some magazine articles referred to it as a pimple on a person's face. This speck of dust or tiny pimple was the planet of Venus orbiting across the face of the sun. Only once every 115 years do we have such a view of Venus and the sun. Apart from unique special glasses equipped to be able to take in the sight, you wouldn't even notice the dark shadow of Venus, obviously because of the awesome burning splendor of the sun before us. And if you would dare, without help of glasses, these unique glasses, of course, if you would dare look to find that dot, you may find that you're blind for the rest of your life. The sun's splendor and blaze would take our sight. You know, what amazed me wasn't the fact that one day every 115 years we can see something like this. But the reality that Venus is always orbiting the face of the sun. There isn't a day in which Venus doesn't move across the face of the sun. This is an ordinary day in the life of Venus. It got me to thinking, why do Venus and all our planets orbit around the sun at all? What, what keeps them on their course? Well, it's argued for the same reason we can drop a basketball or baseball and find that it doesn't take off into space. It just lands on the earth. The simple principle is that heavier objects produce a bigger gravitational pull than the lighter ones. And since the sun is 1,000 times larger than any of our planets in the solar system, the sun's gravity pulls on the planets. So why don't the planets just fall into the sun? You're burned. Well, the planet's not only being pulled to the sun, but it is moving sideways, just like we might experience if we swung a ball with a rope. Without a sideways motion, it would fall to the center, and without the pull to the center, it would go flying off in a straight line, which would happen with that ball if you let go of the rope. So what does this have to do with our study in Colossians? Well, I want to commend this to you as an illustration of Paul's point in this text. While Paul does indeed communicate the greater glory of Jesus Christ in verse 16, that everything has been created by him and for him, he makes a connection in our text with the Christian's walk and the pull from the gravity and weight and glory of the Son, S-O-N, of Jesus Christ. That is, that we live with the gravity and weight of Christ's person and saving work, always drawing us in. It's my prayer that as you walk out and you see the face of the sun and you're reminded that you are orbiting around the gravity of that burning luminary, I want you to be reminded that as a Christian, you also are living before the face of Jesus Christ. You were drawn in by the sheer weight and gravity of the glories of the gospel. Now, indeed, we would argue that the fact that God does work in our salvation is because of what Christ has already accomplished in his saving work. But Paul makes the connection that God grants a sanctifying power through the proclamation of this gospel or being filled with the knowledge of his will. 
In Paul's terms, look at Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. He says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the positive summary. You've received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in Him, being rooted and grounded in Him. The gravity and weight of the promises of the gospel drawing us in. And so we walk. Paul, in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, we won't have time to mind this text, these texts before us, but I will summarize them. Paul warns what happens when we forget the promises of the gospel. When we replace the message of the gospel with human wisdom, human philosophy, and human teaching. He says in verse 23 of chapter 2 that this human wisdom has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh has no power over the flesh. So a human message has no power, but nor does the human work or human effort. Paul deals with threats of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We would call that legalism. Threats. A list. If I don't do this, then that will keep me from my fleshly passions that are destroying me. That has no power. Or to separate ourselves from what we perceive as the problem. Maybe that object is the problem. Asceticism. That's the answer. Or maybe clinging to a higher spiritual power through mystical experiences like visions or dreams. Paul deals with that in 2.18. Visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This too has no power over the flesh, for it appeals to the self to deal with the self. Colossians 1.19 tells us, that the growth that we need is a growth that has to come from God because the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. We need Him. He is the substance. So we ask, as we look at this text in Colossians 1, 9-14, what will a Christ-honoring life look like when he or she continues in the hope of the gospel, is drawn to the weight of the gospel? I'm glad you asked if you're asking that question. That is what Paul is addressing for us. He's going to give us two gospel-weighted responses. Two gospel-weighted responses that characterize a life that pleases God. And we'll see this particularly in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And verses 11 through 14 unfold that walk in verse 10. Let's read 9 and 10 to capture these two gospel-weighted responses. The first one we'll notice is a gospel-weighted understanding, a gospel-weighted understanding. And we see it in the end of verse 9, but let's read to that point. Uh, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's our first gospel-weighted response. Gospel-weighted understanding. Second, verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And therein is our second response. A second gospel-weighted response is a gospel-weighted walk. Gospel gravity. Drawing us in to consider the personal work of Christ. Strengthening us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That, I believe, is Paul's point. 
Let's unpack it. The first gospel-weighted response that characterizes a life that pleases God is a gospel-weighted understanding. We're going to mine this text, but remember, we will need to draw from chapter 2 to fill in some of the context. Verse 9 again, And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Understanding is the Christian's response. This is Paul's prayer. The word prayer describes a general prayer that may have different kinds of prayers within it. This is a general word for prayer. In fact, we see that in verse 3. We thank God, that's a kind of prayer, when we pray, that's the general prayer. In this case, he makes a general prayer, but he's specifically now going to ask. The word asking describes specific requests in behalf of individual needs. And in this case, within the body, he uses the word plural, for you, describing individuals within the body of Christ that specifically need to be prayed for in this way. This isn't just a general, broad-sweeping, very specific. Here's my concern. This is the burden of my heart before the Lord for you. It's for them. It's their response. It's a present response. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will. This prayer is something yet to be brought to fruition. In chapter 1, verse 6, we saw that they understood the grace of God in truth. There was a past reality. Here he's praying for a future reality, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's yet future, but it's a present need. Yet future, but a present need. It's the Christian's response. It's his present response, but it's a present response to, notice, God's action to God's prior action, God's sovereign action. And we get this from verse 9 in which he prays to God. He's praying to the Lord. That's who he's addressing in verse 3. We're thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he's asking in a passive tense that they may be filled. They are the receivers of the action of God. And so they respond from God's sovereign action. This is why Paul prays. Now what is it? What is this knowledge of this will that they're being filled with, that, that God is acting upon them with? And that is the question. And for that, we need to do a little mining. So bear with me as we do a little bit of studying, a little inductive study in our Bibles. You want to note that the way Paul describes the gospel is the way he describes the knowledge of his will. In fact, we see in verse 9 that the knowledge of his will is in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word knowledge and understanding describes the believer's reception to the gospel. Look with me at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6. Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This word understanding is the word knowledge, used of being filled with the knowledge of his will in verse 9. It can be translated, and you have known the grace of God in truth, verse 6. But notice the context. It's gospel knowledge that he's describing. Gospel understanding. Colossians 2, 2 is helpful. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 uses this, these words, understanding and knowledge, and notice who he ascribes them to. 
Colossians 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What he's praying for is the knowledge of his will, and he takes knowledge and says, and that's summed up in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2, 2. And he prays for understanding, and he says, oh, that too is found in Jesus Christ. So we find the idea of knowledge of his will and knowing the gospel, understanding the gospel correlated here in this context. We find also fruit. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 1 that this knowledge of his will bears forth fruit. We see that in verse 10. It affects a walk, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice verse 6. What does the gospel do? It, that's referring to the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing, or the word increasing. Same words used to describe the impact of the knowledge of his will. Bearing fruit, increasing, growing. The same response. Correlating again the gospel, the personal work of Christ, and the knowledge of his will. What's interesting, we find in Colossians 1.9 that this knowledge of his will is in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me add one more support here. Look again at Colossians 2. I left a little phrase hanging for you last time. Colossians 2.2. So Paul prays again, being filled, the act of God. We respond with an increase in wisdom and understanding. Where does wisdom dwell? Colossians 2.2, finished there at the end of the the phrase, which is Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See the connection? We're drawn back to Christ again. Now in Colossians 2, through the rest of the chapter, he unpacks this wisdom which is in Christ. He unpacks the person of Christ, his deity and his humanity, and the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Look with me at Colossians 2.9. This is the wisdom that is in Christ. Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Chapter 2, 11 through 15. We won't read the entire text, but you see his burial, his death, his resurrection, and our relationship in union with Jesus Christ. What we're arguing for, then, is that this knowledge of his will isn't just this broad knowledge, this mystical knowledge, this feeling within or sense of direction. It is the particular knowledge of God's will as it resides in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary work for sinners. Encompassing, as we're going to see in verses 12 through 14, giving you a preview, our glorification, our redemption, our sanctification. So that his will can be wrapped up, if you will, in the summary statement of the personal work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. For therein we find everything we need and what Christ has accomplished. John Gill, an English Baptist theologian of the 1700s, wrote this, The will of God as it is exhibited in the gospel, which contains the will of God respecting the salvation of his chosen ones, as that it is his will that Christ should obtain eternal redemption for them. The apostle does not pray that they might have a knowledge of this will of God, 
for some knowledge they had already. They had heard of the hope laid up in heaven in the truth of the word of the gospel. And therefore, what he asked for is that they might be filled with the knowledge of it. It was not full and complete, that they might have a larger measure of it and such a fullness of it as they were capable of. Remember a couple of trips to India, uh, driving through Pune and seeing these water trucks carrying water in their tanks. It didn't take long to notice that they were leaking and they were losing a lot of water on the road. Cracked water tanks. How were they able to transport all that water to the well that they were going to fill with cracked water tanks? Beloved, I think of you and I as we're called to be filled with the knowledge of His will and the, the overwhelming reality that how can my, inf- my finite mind, my finite strength ever contain the fullness of the wealth of God? How could I? But we find that Paul is underlining that this, this fullness is found in Jesus Christ. And we come to Him as if to tap that faucet behind that faucet the overwhelming infinite glory of Jesus Christ's person and work, and we come in and we take a cup and we fill it up and are replenished in our souls and motivated to continue to press on in our walk. That, I believe, is what Paul is getting at. We draw great comfort knowing that it all resides in Jesus Christ. We can then pray for one another that God would fill us up with the knowledge of His will, would impress us, with Christ, that He would press those realities deep down into our hearts. That we would examine the glories of the gospel like you would examine your loved one's diamond ring, moving it underneath the light. And so we begin to look and admire at the gospel as we are filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Say, what might that look like? Well, when our souls feel the burden of guilt and we consider that eternal condemnation that our guilt deserved, we run right away to meditate upon the deity of Christ. We meditate on His eternal power exerted through His work of redemption to save from eternal wrath. We consider His eternal redemption to satisfy the eternal justice of God, and we find great hope and encouragement when our soul feels the weight of trial and suffering and we are perplexed by the frailty of life, we run right away to the promises of the gospel and we consider the resurrection life of Christ, that He has been raised in power and that resurrection power has been granted to us in Him so that we will never face eternal corruption and eternal death. When our souls feel the failure of misplaced expectations, misplaced earthly rewards that our hearts find hope in, and they fail us, and they bring us to its bitter end. We draw from Christ the sweet promise that He is our portion and an eternal inheritance. When our souls feel the failure of a spouse, we look to the covenant salvation secured by Christ, in which we are wed to Him through the new covenant, never to be cast away, but to be eternally embraced in the grasp of the beloved Jesus Christ. Remember, just running across a picture this week of a mother dog, a Sharpay. That doesn't bring great memories to me. We've had a Sharpay and, uh, uh, named Callie, and we, we got rid of her. She didn't do so well in our family, and I was trying to respect uh, my wife with these 
two little kids and this dog jumping on them. So the illustration already falls short. Don't press it too far. But the picture was of this Sharpay, this mother Sharpay, feeding two kitten tigers. I thought, here are these treacherous little beasts finding solace and comfort in a mother's milk. It draws me to the higher and greater reality. Here we, treacherous creatures, apart from God's grace, find great solace and comfort in drawing from the promises of Christ in the gospel. Our souls are renewed, encouraged, strengthened as we remember what Christ has already done. And we rest in him and we glory in him. For we find that Christ's work of redemption and sanctification and glorification reaches into every aspect of our lives. For what we needed was a position before God that was righteous and we find it in Christ. We are called to be holy as he is holy. And we find that sanctification in Christ. We need to be glorified. And we find that in Jesus Christ. Because he has redeemed, we have forgiveness of sins. Because he has been set apart in holiness, we can be sanctified. Because he has been glorified, we will be glorified. Are you orbiting the face of the sun, drawn in to Christ by the gravity and weight of the gospel? Does that compel your heart? Maybe I should ask for a moment and address those of you who have not heard and understood the gospel. Maybe the gospel to you is trying to do good to outweigh your bad deeds. Maybe you're trying to pay penance to God for your sins. And if this is the case, Colossians 1.6, the grace of God in truth has not been heard and understood. The gospel has not come to you. And we would commend to you the will of God in the personal work of Jesus Christ. That you would declare your self-righteousness is rubbish before God and receive by faith God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. That you would deny your penalty-paying efforts to satisfy God for your guilt and turn by faith to trust in Christ for the payment of your sin to satisfy God's justice. This is where it begins, is in Christ Jesus. And believers, we would never want to run from the gravity and weight of the gospel. We keep running to it to be replenished when we sin, when we fail, we reflect as we sing in that song what he is completing. He has completed, and we rejoice in Jesus Christ. That takes us to gospel weight number two, a gospel-weighted walk, a gospel gravity walk, verse 10. He continues, and again, this is coming out of being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're continuing, and that, was, that is all found in Jesus Christ particularly in the promises of the gospel of Christ. And this then drives a walk, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We'll focus on walk here for the moment. This is a Hebrewism. We find this in the Old Testament describing the character or habit of one's conduct and thinking. In fact, the character of one's thinking and conduct can be described as a well-worn path or well-worn walk. God's commandments are presented in the Old Testament as God's path, and he walks them well. He never leaves them. He is faithful to his word. We walk after him as we think after his word, 
as we obey his word. But notice the high calling. Notice how he describes this walk, the character of our lives. Verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Who is this Lord? I think we just kind of passed by this title. We've seen it so much. We find Paul addressing God, verse 3, God the Father, and then he commends Jesus Christ underneath the title Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. I commend that this is the Lord that he's referring to, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, being filled with the promises of the gospel is going to affect our walk in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord. It was a primitive confession of the church in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians 12.3. To say that Jesus is Lord was the New Testament's use of translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. In Exodus 3.14, Moses asks of the Lord, what is your name? If I'm to declare you to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to Israel, who are you? What is your name? And God says, I am that I am, using a verb of being, describing the eternality of God, that he is independent, self-definitional. He names himself. His meaning does not derive upon any creaturely thing, but derives from himself. He's Yahweh, the self-existent one. Throughout the New Testament, in cases of Peter, quoting from Isaiah 8:13 in his passage 1 Peter 3:14 through 15, he takes an Old Testament passage describing Yahweh and attributes the title Lord to Jesus Christ, translating Yahweh as Lord. Paul himself in Romans 14:8 through 11, may need to get the auto to check back on this, but Romans 14:8 through 11, Paul describes Christ as the Lord. And quotes from Isaiah 45, 20 through 25, which attributes the promises to Yahweh. Simply stated, this Yahweh is the Son of God now come in the flesh. This is the Lord, the self-existent one. Now, do you get the height of this connection? He says, to walk in a manner worthy of Yahweh, Christ. Fully, do you get that? Fully, completely Pleasing to him. The word all is used. All pleasing. And every good work. All good work. And we stand back, and we rightly should, and we should be shaking a little bit, going, how in the world could I ever meet that? The self-existent one? The independent one? The Lord? To walk in a manner worthy of him? But I fail. I'm unable to. And we draw great comfort from Colossians 2, 6, and 7, which we've looked at already. We'll look at it again. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, Christ Jesus Yahweh, so walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Oh, there's the hope. That worthy walk has already been completed by Jesus Christ in His obedience, in His death, in His resurrection. And I have Christ. I've been united with him. I've received him. Therefore, I can walk in such a way to honor and reflect him. 
but not to earn his favor. I could never do such a thing. I never have the power to do that. Much less to be fully all-pleasing to him is found in union with Christ. You know, in a sneak peek, in verse 14, he's going to commend that union with Christ as the answer to giving thanks. We'll look at that in a little bit. Because God has already been pleased with us in union with the personal work of the Lord Jesus, we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so we are reminded once again of living from the gravity and weight of the Son, drawn in to Christ, glorying in Him, resting in Him, filled with Him. Now notice some features of this gospel gravity walk in verse 10. There are at least four features, uh, four participles that underline a habitual response or habitual fruit in light of this worthy walk. The first one is bearing fruit in every good work. The second is increasing in the knowledge of God. The third is being strengthened. It too is a participle. We don't pick it up in the English, but it is there in the Greek. And the fourth is giving thanks. All describing this worthy walk. We'll describe the first feature of this gospel gravity walk as fruitful. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now this fruitful, fruit bearing that's driven by the knowledge of his will has a qualitative character. Qualitative fruit. That is, that it apprehends the pleasure of God. We may miss that because we've already bypassed the phrase in verse 10. Fully pleasing to him, or literally unto his pleasure, bearing fruit in every good work. So the perspective of this fruit, this orientation of this fruit, is driven by the pleasure of God and the pursuit of his pleasure. We may illustrate this relationship from a plant that leans towards its life giver to give life. It leans towards the sun or the leaves reaching upward to gather the light and life of the sun in order to bear fruit. So we draw from the promises of the gospel as we're filled with the gospel. It affects our walk that's pleasing to him, pursuing his pleasure. And out of this pleasure, we bear fruit. We note from the pages of Scripture that it's the Spirit's ministry to bring the gospel to our hearts and to open our eyes to apprehend, to see the glory of Christ, that in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we look at Christ and we see the fullness of deity in Him. We look at Christ and we see the glory of His work availed for us as sinners. The result is to bear fruit. It's a qualitative fruit-bearing. But it's also quantitative. Quantitative. There's a quantity to it. He says every good work. Again, notice these consuming all comprehensive statements. Every good work will see strengthened with all power. All these big, infinite idea words. <laughs> we ask, how could we ever be filled with all of this? And again, we commend Christ as the answer. We find it all in Christ. Let's again mine from Colossians to examine this good work where do these works where do we find the, these the source for these works these good works a uh, chapter 3 verse 1 through 4 we're going to read the, we're going to find the source and then we'll see in light of this source the call to put off and to put on that is the good works chapter 3 1 through 4 now notice he's going to present the gospel to us 
gospel proclamation. If then you've been raised with Christ, Christ's resurrection work. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's already been done in Christ Jesus. We seek the things that are above because it's already been accomplished. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, past reality, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's union. You're in Him. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So the putting to death, the flesh is driven by our union with Jesus Christ. Notice the putting on. Where did the good works flow? Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, he drives us back to the gospel. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must Forgive. All these put-ons find their root and source in union with Jesus Christ. So even the fruitfulness for every good work drives us back to consider Christ Jesus and all that's been accomplished in Him, our union with Him. We live in light of the gravity of the gospel, the gravity of the Son. Now we've seen fruitful, a fruitful gospel gravity walk. How about knowledgeable? And this we can deal with very quickly. We've Seeing the idea of knowledge uh, carried throughout the text. Uh, look back with me at verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, underlining the continual habit of growing. But what's interesting is that this growth comes out of the bearing fruit in every good work, which is rooted in being filled with the knowledge of His will. Think of our story problems, our mathematical story problems. What are they for? To help us take these mathematical principles and apply them so that we understand them and we connect the dots. God works in the same way. We hear these truths of Christ and then we find comfort in them as they're applied to our life in fruit bearing, which brings an increase of understanding, an increase of knowledge. If this gospel gravity walk then is fruitful, it is knowledgeable, it is also powerful. Look with me at verse 11. It is powerful. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Take note again that this is prayer, reflecting his prayer. It's passive, describing God's power and strength availed to the needs of the believer. But the same Greek word is used to describe this strength and power. English uses Separate words, strength and power. The, the Greek word is dunamai, and it uses it twice. One is a participle. You could say strengthened with all strength, empowered with all power. Simply stated, the power required for our endurance is the power supplied. The a power required is the power supplied. We see a quantity. It's a participle describing the continuous supply, the character of this power. And we see quality again. Notice, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all strength, with all power, according to, here's the quality, his glorious might. 
the word glory we get is doxa. Doxology from that, the study of glory. Glory is the manifestation or display of God's attributes. Alexander McLaren said this, Glory is the flashing brightness of the divine self-manifestation. The flashing brightness of the divine self-manifestation. In other words, the infinite fullness of God is on display in this power and might availed to us. But then we ask, how in the world could I ever contain or hold this infinite display of God's power? His infinite attributes are put on display. How, how could I ever contain them? That, wouldn't that not like be taking a cup and trying to squeeze the oceans into a cup or take the universe and to squeeze it into a box? How could I ever? And then we're reminded of the promise of Colossians 2.9. Look there again with me. We've seen it already. Colossians 2.9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Oh, it's in Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so once again, we're drawn back to the gravity of the gospel in Christ. We're reminded of Christ Jesus, that our strength flows from him. From glorious considerations of God and the personal work of Jesus Christ. Now notice, what is its aim? What is its aim in verse 11, this glorious might? One commentator writes, it's a poor result of such a force. You know, think of this infinite glory, and its aim is my endurance and my patience. McLaren, the author, writes, one of the highest uses of divine strength given to us is to make us able to meet the antagonism of evil without it shaking our souls. This power brings great joy as we consider the glory of God in Christ. It is a joy-filled endurance because we're met with the glory of God's might as we consider the weight of the gospel. We're impressed with the brilliant splendor of God. He satisfies our souls so that we desire to remain faithful, persevering, and patient. When my youngest was but two years old, we would play a game called Flashlight Tag. And we'd have to wait until the dark of night, especially in the summers. And mom would be grieving that they'd go to bed so late. That's why I had to have it. <laughs> she said, oh, we all understood that. The person who was it had the flashlight. But I remember my two-year-old, and I'm trying to safeguard the individual's name, my two-year-old at the time would tremble and shake for fear because of the dark, and it is coming with the flashlight to get him. Well, I would say, you know what? You can hide with me. You can hide with me. Well, that trembling turned into ecstatic joy. You could literally feel shaking with ecstatic joy. And when the person who was it would say, where are you? This little bud, with great confidence, would say, we're right here. <laughs> but that's not how the game is supposed to go. He has turned from trembling of fear of the dark to a trembling of confidence in Dad's presence to even meet it <laughs> with the flashlight. We find great comfort and confidence in the promises of God in Jesus Christ to strengthen and encourage us and bring great joy as we're overwhelmed with the display of his glory 
in the knowledge of his will in the gospel. There is a fourth feature. We've seen it's a fruitful gospel gravity walk, a knowledgeable, powerful. A fourth is thankful. It's our fourth participle that characterizes this knowledge-filled walk. We see this in verses 12 through 13. It's under the terms giving thanks. He continues, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It should catch our attention that in verse 3, he said, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can understand that. First person, second person, the Trinity. What a relationship. But he has just said, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Our Father, we give thanks. How can we be described in relationship to God as our Father, implying that we are his children? When verse 14 says that the problem is we need the forgiveness of sins. And we're drawn back again to the gravity of the gospel. Each of these salvation realities in verses 12, 13, and 14 that bring about this giving of thanks merge into union with Christ in verse 14. It's a long run-on sentence. In verse 12, he gives thanks to the Father. Who has qualified you? How can I be qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, we ask? When I'm separated from God, Colossians 1 told us, at enmity, hostility, alienated. How could I be qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? I who am a beggar upon the heap of my own sin. I who am bankrupt of righteousness. A debtor, an eternal debtor. This inheritance is more than just the great glories of heaven because it's in the realm of light. And we know from First John that God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. And he is the fountain of light. And so this inheritance all revolves around getting God as our portion, as Psalm 16 describes in Psalm 73. God is our inheritance. How can we get God in such a way that we can call him Father? Verse 13, he is delivered. These are all past tenses, by the way, past realities. He's delivered us from the domain, the rule, the tyranny of darkness from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, from the future hopelessness of sin. He's delivered past and transferred us past to the kingdom, the realm of his beloved son, the loved one, the one who's loved by the Father. How can we be qualified, delivered, transferred in union with Christ? Verse 14. There's the shorthand for the gospel. In whom? We find it in Genesis when God says, in your seed, to David, in your seed. We see that moving to the New Testament where Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in him. It's in union with Jesus Christ. Christ has come as our representative. Why? Because we had a representative, Adam, and he failed. He broke God's law, and we were in Adam, and his sin, his guilt was credited to our account. We're sinners in Adam. We needed another representative, a last Adam, a faithful representative, and he came in the fullness of time, and he accomplished redemption. He fulfilled the law of God. He provided Righteousness 
in him, as we're united by faith with Jesus Christ, we can be declared righteous, justified, because righteousness is in him. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians 1, a little bit of a, a side note that the first service didn't get, but it's such a beautiful text to let ring in our, our hearts and minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Paul, in the context of the wisdom and power of God in Christ, in the gospel, that's what he's hammering on in these verses 18 through 31. He says this in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All the blessings of salvation stored up in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hence, these can be past tenses, delivered, transferred, redeemed. We get Christ, united with Christ. We get the blessings of salvation, redeemed, justified, adopted, sanctified, glorified, all rooted in Christ. Gospel weightiness, a gospel gravity. This last week, I took my family to a funeral. It was a harsh one to actually be at an open casket. A 15-year-old had been shot dead. Well, he had a few days in the hospital and didn't make it. Shot by an AK-47. I wanted my kids to see the, the frailty of life. At the funeral, we heard Lots of promises of resolution found in, or reconciliation, I guess you could say, or redemption, terms the culture uses, found in better parenting, better community, better church. The hope for us is laid in the redemptive work of Christ, in unity with him. That's our ultimate hope. The great aunt of this young man is in our Bible study. And the only hope to commend to such a suffering heart at this time, is the hope of Jesus Christ. Therein we find the promises of glorification. Therein we find the promises of sanctification, a domain ruled by Christ, his domain. And therein we find our promise of redemption. He has bought us out of the slave market of sin, paid for guilt, accomplished righteousness, to be credited to our account through union with Christ. May we rejoice in the gravity of the gospel. Father, we thank you for such promises as this. Lord, may we be burdened to pray, to ask, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will as you have communicated your glorious work in the saving work of Jesus Christ. May we find there in the saving work of Christ and our union with him great blessing and encouragement. And we find renewed hope and revigoration as we are reminded of what has already been accomplished for us and renew us to, to give thanks and to respond with great joy as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, giving pleasure to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.